Hello, and welcome to Make Data Human. I'm your host, Anjali Beatty, and on this episode, we're going to be discussing all of the recent innovations in the artificial intelligence space and explore what is the future of AI. And joining me in that conversation is my favorite data enthusiast, DBS. So, a lot's happened in the last few months. The release of ChatGPT, then the release of ChatGPT4, advancements in generative AI. Give me a snapshot view of what's happening. A lot is happening and it's happening very, very quickly. Yeah, I think the last year has been nuts. The pace of release and adoption have been incredible. I think obviously we've got to talk about ChatGPT, everyone does. I won't spend too long on it because I think it's been over discussed. But there are parts of it that aren't discussed, which I will touch on uh, in terms of what I'm excited about and what I'm also concerned about. So obviously ChatGPT was released November last year. You know, I think it had a million users in five days and now it's got 100 million. It's, It's the fastest adopted app ever released. And the whole reason for that is because it's accessible, right? You can type and talk to it and it talks back in a way that is unbelievably convincing that it's not an AI. So that's the reason why it was so quickly adopted. But then it's been continued in terms of its use, usability and and how people have truly adopted it, not just gone on and it's it's not a fad, it's not a, a novel, irrelevant hype it genuinely is a game changer in terms of what it can do it's very versatile it's it's built on what we call a foundation model which means it's versatile it's it's able to do multiple things it can in the form of language and now with gpt4 the combination of language and image uh, in and then language out but it's able to write poems it's able to write code it's able to do math it, it's able to be funny is able to convince the user that it's actually a person, uh, which is scary. What it's not good at is deciphering between what's true and what's not, regardless of the academic benchmarks that uh, OpenAI may have published about it. But to the majority of those 100 million, it's a game changer in terms of what it can do. It's been adopted so rapidly uh, in terms of the workforce internally, how content is created, how you know guidance is given, how search is done. Uh, off the back of, of last year, really, which was all about image and all about kind of stable diffusion and DALI 2. But I think text is a lot more versatile in, in where it can be used. You know, I think images is, is strictly a creative field, um, whereas text can be a very formal field and a very formal setting. And then when you think, you know, code is essentially the same, right, as characters. Now, I think there was a a statistic, the new version of Codex got released a couple of days ago, but on on the previous version, of all the programmers that used it, 46% of the code that was um, pushed was actually generated from the the generative AI as opposed to the developer. So half the code actually comes and and the developer trusts that it's right and, and in the end it it gets pushed to, to their repository. So adoption is huge and, and usability and, and and ultimately impact is, is huge. So it shifted the whole mindset of AI because now everyone understands it, they can touch it, they can feel it. But what it's done has it's brought some, some dangers as well, I think. Because we're moving so fast, we're not putting in place the safeguards to make sure that we're doing things in an ethical way, in a, a governed way. It's all about releasing the next new version with you know better capabilities and the next app, and that has 
you know, a lot of dangers, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. What is amazing is the pace of adoption and the noise around it. It does cause me some headaches, you know, when, when ed, every client comes to me saying, oh, let's use ChatGPT. It's not quite that simple. I think we need to move fast because businesses that don't, you know, will, will lose, but also businesses that move too fast and don't think through the considerations like pushing your PII data into ChatGPT when you know OpenAI are going to consume that. And then it may then, you know, get disclosed on the other end when other users can you know, use ChatGPT. That's a real danger. We're not even we're not even getting onto the subject of the data that it was trained on in the first place. But because it's so good, because it is so enabling in terms of what we can do as humans, people aren't asking these questions, they're just running with it. So from your perspective, what are the limitations of ChatGPT and why do those limitations exist? So if you look at GPT-3 and GPT-4, OpenAI never disclosed the algorithm. <laughs> they never disclosed the data set and they never disclosed basically any details of what GPT-4 was. But there's a large assumption that the underlying model, the transformer model, was very similar to that of GPT-3. The difference, the large difference, is the size of data, the size of parameters within that model, and the amount of compute that was required to run it. So it's almost like brute force. Now we've got the architectures that can learn, and the scale at which it can learn is, is based on the, the amount of data and, and the compute we give it. That is one of the limitations in that it's generative, right? It doesn't, it's not able to say, I've given you this output. So if you ask it, who founded a country or who invented something, it can tell you that, but it can't reference where it got that information from. And it can't decipher between fact and fiction. The other limitation for me is the lack of control. Because they're generative, you can't really control them. And if you look at what OpenAI have been doing in ChatGPT, it's got something called human in the loop. The way that they actually train ChatGPT was to get the outputs of GPT-3 and uh, they, they took a number of outputs and they put it in front of a human and they said, right, this is what you've asked it and these are the responses that it's given. Which one is most appropriate for what you've asked it? And the human then basically was teaching GPT-3 what was right and what was wrong based on what they were asking it and what it returned. So it's kind of a, a conversational comprehension uh, that it's learning. But fundamentally, it's based on the learning that happens from the humans that feed back to it. So it's limited. And I think there may have been some statistics that said that there were 40 people that were responsible in the first version of ChatGPT. And, and this is how incredible it is, right? How performant ChatGPT is. And it's only 40 people that were responsible for the task of providing feedback because it can learn so quickly you can give it it's not like the old school algorithms where you had to feed it loads of examples of positives for it to learn because under the hood it's got all this association you give it one positive and it can make connections to what it's seen before and turn that into you know an understanding of what you've asked for and a correction in the prediction moving forwards but you know it's influenced by this this human in the loop pace and what OpenAI have done is they have bolted on a number of what I would call band-aids, or in, in the UK we say plasters. You know, there, there are limitations to, to the model um, in that it could be biased, it could be racist, it could be offensive. And what uh, OpenAI have done is bolted on after 
the output of that algorithm has, has been trained, bolted on a series of band-aids to prevent it from being able to answer certain questions that are ethically, you know, wrong or to perform certain actions that we believe will do harm. And there's a really comprehensive list of of actions that, and it's the same for most of these that have been released. Uh, you know, Google's Bard have got the same. It's a list of, of things that the design of the final algorithm is preventing the user from asking or the, the algorithm to return. But there's always gaps and there's a, a something called Dan, which is a do anything now, uh, which is a clever, almost like a following of, of people that are creating prompts that fool the algorithm to bypass some of those band-aids and safeguards that they put on. So you can still get to a place where you, you get, you know, the underlying generative model to, to tell you something that the designers in the example of ChatGPT is OpenAI, have tried to prevent them from from doing so, and that's that's the danger. Really, is is that you cannot control it. And I think my personal opinion is, you know, they're solving the problem with band aids rather than you know looking at the underlying disease, which is the data that is fed into these algorithms. And you know, it's a huge chunk of the internet. They've done some. Piece. Actually, we don't know what they've done in GPT-4, as I said, because they've not told us. But in GPT-3 and prior examples, they did simple things like remove any pages from the internet training set that contained offensive words. Um, so if it contained swear words, for example, any page they would remove. Now, you can imagine the impact that this has. It creates a bias, right? They're trying to be clever but but they're not really i mean there's this imbalance between the effort that people are putting onto the technicality of the algorithms the amount of compute the amount of data versus the quality of that data and really understanding that data so you know we've come so far in nlp to remove pages that contain one word that is offensive is embarrassing and it's just showing and highlighting the effort on the data versus the effort on the algorithm when we've we've worked so hard to create these really complex um, architectures and improve it further and put more compute behind it and put more data into it without really just thinking, actually, if I put a better data set in and I understood what that data set was, then I might end up with a better result. And it's kind of the, the danger of scale and the availability of compute. Ultimately, the more data you put into these things, the better they become. You know, solving it that way, for me, it is not necessarily the right thing to do. We should move fast and we should continue, you know, these complex architectures, but to not spend more time and attention on the data is is a bit of a, an oversight. And you, you see it, it's a really nice paper on the image data sets from last year where they typed in schoolboy and looked at the images that were found in that data set. And they were pictures of a you know schoolboy, as you would imagine, uh, with his school uniform on, on his way to school. You typed in schoolgirl, and there was a, a lot of pornographic uh, and offensive images. Um, and that just shows you that the bias that can be present within the data set. But unless you're asking those questions, unless you're considering them when you design the data that pushes into the, the algorithms, then you know, you're creating these dangers that the algorithm can learn things you don't want it to learn. And there's a great movement at the minute. You know, you've got um, the Algorithmic Justice League and the whole uh, stochastic parrots movement and and these researchers largely ones that have been booted out of 
big tech companies like Google that are behind this, and and they're trying to drive this agenda of guys slow down and uh, think about what you're doing. But then you've got the pace of the of the tech players that are just moving so quickly because they want to get market share, they want to get adoption, they want to ultimately generate revenue. So it's a real danger. And you know, I, I've spent my career in data, and and I I care about it because I know how important it is. But um, not everyone does. And I think that's if that's one thing I would watch out for, it would be that. It's funny listening to you describe your perception of what the issue is, because I feel like that generally is the question in technology and data full stop, which is that the emphasis goes to the muscle power and not to the relevance. And relevance is a lot more nuanced. It requires a lot more thought. It requires a level of specificity and precision and even sort of a, a philosophical quality as to what we're measuring, how we're measuring it, and the ways in which we do that to drive a specific outcome that are really challenging to think through. Whereas when the focus is more on computing power, on volumes of data, et cetera, it's still challenging for sure, but it's a very different, I would say, cognitive exercise. And perhaps this is where you know, the, and we talk a lot about this, like where does behavioral science fit into artificial intelligence? It's here, but it's also in, are we actually asking the right questions and is suppressing content, because that ultimately is what we're doing in the training process as you described, is suppressing content ultimately the best way to create a generative solution that then is scaled to the world given all the issues that we've had with bias and artificial intelligence full stop. And I'm really curious to hear from your perspective, what do you think would be a better way to train models for let's say chat GPT-5, for example, that would reduce bias, both gender, racial, etc. I don't have an answer. I have a set of considerations. You know, I think there is a better way. And that, that way starts with really understanding what you're putting in. And it's hard to do because of the size of the data. And to your point about, you know, behavioral science and mindsets. And, you know, I think early on when we started this podcast, you asked me about things that motivated me. And I did say scale as one of those, because I think most people that work in data science, machine learning, they, they want to do big things, right? And the more data you have, the more possibilities you have. And and I think that's why, you know, these, these algorithms are so good because they have seen so many possibilities. But, you know, we know as a world, we have connections in our world that are detrimental to us as people and and to the outcomes of our actions. So if we think about data in the same way, there are connections in the data that are detrimental to the outputs of these algorithms and then ultimately the actions of these algorithms. So... I don't have an answer. I have a set of considerations. I'd like them to be part of the conversation more than they are. You know, the facts that GPT-4 was released as an academic paper, which it really wasn't, and it didn't disclose any information, is setting a precedent. It's frustrating to hear, you know, Sam Altman from OpenAI saying things like we need more governance and then not allowing those outside of, of OpenAI to actually govern what they are doing. You know, there's a debate of open versus closed development of these models, but to say that and then not disclose any details of what went in, you know, I, I don't know if if you would 
eat a recipe if you didn't know what went in it. I don't know if you would listen to a school teacher if you know you didn't know where they were educated or if they were educated and and or what their belief systems are. You know, if if you follow a religious leader, like it just these are fundamental questions of life, and I think they should be fundamental questions of later. So true, and I'm very curious that whole sort of dynamic of open versus closed. And I could see perhaps some of the logic behind trying to keep it black box from an IP perspective, et cetera. But from your perspective, what do you think the best way is to keep it as open as possible? So that way, A, the integrity or lack thereof in some instances can be improved upon or challenged, but also B, and perhaps more importantly, how we actually legislate and develop policy around these technologies. OpenAI have given access to their API but they've not given access to their model, right? So you can't take the weights of that model and look at those weights or fine tune those models. So, you know, on Hugging Face, for example, there are models that are shared. You can download those models and then you can train them on your own data. And we, we call it fine tune and optimize them against what you need to do. Open AI just gives you an API so you can see the outputs, very different way of, of doing it. And they've not Actually, they've not even revealed their architecture from a code perspective. So there's one level of open, which is showing your code, what you, what's your architecture, how's your model designed. Then the weights are after it's been trained on your data. And then you can take those weights and, and train it. My personal view is that, you know, that the industry has moved so quickly in the last 10 years because of open source. We created this behavior, this pattern of sharing our models with each other and building on them and the pace of advancement was huge because we we enabled that right and now we've got to a point where i i'm not sure if it's because open ai i mean they're saying it's because it, it's too dangerous right if you put these models into the hands of uh, of people who planning to do harms so it could be people that are trying to do social engineering it could be terrorist groups trying to persuade people to the and we can get into a behavioral space very quickly here angelina a very interesting debate but that's kind of their side of the argument is these things are dangerous the other side of the argument is well you know we can't help you to find vulnerabilities in your models right so if you don't let us see what the data is you know the architecture and the, and the weights we can't help you to improve it um so you've got two sides of the camp both of which have got very notable points and, and both have, have got value i'd say got merit but when we talk about legislation and, and governance my hope would be that from a governance perspective there will be a future where they get audited and they have to explain to you know a third party body what they've done how they've done it and how they have truly tried to mitigate these dangers what's the most effective way to do it Historically, with technology, the amount of, of governance is not where it should be, I would say. But I think the the dangers of, of this are, are, I think, much stronger, right? The the pace of adoption and the sheer number of things this thing can do, there's no end, right? So I, I think governance is important. You know, I think having a, a third-party body that is allowed to kind of look under the hood and know what you're doing and and what you know what you're training on and and how you're training it they should be able to answer for themselves and be held accountable 
a bit like you see on the community forums on on social media and and the guidelines of which they remove content is is the same right they have to be held accountable to a to a set of safeguards i think the the danger with creating this precedent that nothing gets shared anymore is that the responsibility is with a small number of companies right open ai and and google and uh, we could say deepmind who are a part of google but probably the most advanced in terms of how they can design agents uh, which is slightly different to just generative models we can talk about that in in a minute if you like but um and then you know you've got um a few other handful of uh, other players but if we start to create this precedent where everything is is behind a closed door then we rely on those small group of companies to do the right thing the great thing about open source is we've got a number of researchers who care deeply about people about ethics about governance and they've been able to pick apart these open source models in the last 10 years and find fault with them and you know help to ultimately improve them if we don't allow that then we don't allow ourselves to to ask those hard questions across the whole community one thing i would say at this point llama uh, which is meta's model and it got leaked i don't know if you saw that it's not really had the impact that we all thought it would why do you think it hasn't had the impact so last year when openai released dali 2 it was the same as closed it was an api that you could use and it was awesome then stable diffusion released their version as an open source version and we saw an absolute explosion of use cases and evolutions of this idea of generative image ai and it was really positive for for the industry actually forced open ai um and and removed the monopoly i guess it was adopted so quickly this year we've seen much third i think it was a meta released their llm and they made it available to researchers so they were trying to do what i just said right give access to those people that are going to genuinely question it and then it got leaked on 4chan and there was concerns that you know groups were going to take this very very large model and fine tune it for harm some people say it has already been done others you know aren't so sure but in large there hasn't been a great amount of noise about you know the impact of of having this model being leaked and and available i as you wonder why that is i think it's just like i said earlier with image you can generate an image but with language models you can generate more than just what well, the written word you know comes in many different forms it comes in a website format it come you know it comes in in the form of html it comes in you know logical it comes in mass it comes in poems it comes in uh, you know uh, arguments there's so many things you can do with text and i think that we've reached this kind of widespread awareness and so i think people are trying to move so quickly with what they've got that they are focusing their attention on what is readily available in their hands i think it takes a, a lot more effort the community at large is now spread over all of these uh, releases in the last year i think there's not the critical mass of attention that that the image models stable fusion had last year so that said you know it's only been 3 weeks and it is a difficult thing to to fine tune as i said it's not quite as simple as just taking chat gpt and throwing in some 
you know, harmful content and pointing it. It's, it's a little bit more complex than that. So maybe time will tell, but that is, it's almost like a social experiment of what's the impact of releasing, you know, these large language models. Some might say that, um, you know, Google and Meta aren't as advanced as OpenAI and, you know, Bard's been slated a bit in recent weeks because people aren't impressed with with it compared to OpenAI. And, and that's a bit surprising, right, given where you'd expect Google to be. So time will tell, but it's definitely an interesting experiment to, to hopefully inform us because they will just get more powerful and, and better and better. So these open releases will then create more impact, positive or negative, I guess. I imagine the the next generation of PhD dissertations are being inspired right now by the incredible and revolutionary impact that all of this will have and that we literally have no clue what the impact is going to be. It can go so many different directions, whether it's used for for good or for evil or as a profit exercise or to drive more human trafficking or whatever the context might be. One concern I hear from a lot of people I talk to, especially in the, the artistic community, is with all these advancements in generative AI, what's the role for artists and content creators and essentially for human beings? At what point is generative AI going to be able to host this podcast, for example? What is the role for human beings in the workplace anymore? I think the role is changing. You know, obviously certain roles are more impacted than others, but fundamentally it's a tool. And we've we've gone through the ages. I mean, look at the Industrial Revolution. We've we've seen big change in terms of what we do with our hands and our minds as humans. This is just another shift. I think it will consume jobs but it will also create jobs. I always try and be positive about AI. And I think we've talked about you know, make data human, make AI human is a statement I really never want to hear because I <laughs> I feel we shouldn't do that for, for two reasons. One is why create something to replace us? And two, why limit the design of AI against what we bring to the world as humans. Why not think about it as an enabler, as something that can complement us as humans? I think when we do our day jobs, there are things that are you know, very time consuming that aren't very valuable. And, and those are the pieces that I think are gonna get consumed by AI early on. There are some you know, creative uses, but when we think about an artist, it's a bit like, Photoshop or, or any of the software uh, technologies that were released to enable artists to do their jobs better. This one's a bit different because it can create, right? It can do something without guidance, but it's a bit like, you know, how do you hold a paintbrush and how do you hold a pen? I think young artists that are just coming into it have now got a different set of tools that they can play with. And instead they have to be creative with the prompts they feed in to the algorithm, you know, the words they use to create different visuals. And I don't think that from an artistic perspective, I don't think AI will ever replace humans because there's always, you know, the value of, of the skill of the craft. And we're always going to value that. It's modern art versus, you know, a classical art. It's a different form of art, right? And there'll always be a place for, for different varieties. Um, but I think being scared of it and being hesitant of it is only gonna put you in a, a vulnerable position because it's gonna happen it's already happening 
it's not just on the creative side, but it's within the, the workforces that you wouldn't expect. You know, so streamlining the day-to-day activities of someone that operates a computer is going to change. But I think it will create more opportunity for people to to actually do things that are higher value to the world at large. So if we don't have to spend time thinking about creating adverts, then maybe we can focus on climate change. And maybe we can give the power to those that are unable to do what they they could have done before. So as long as we're positive uh, about it, obviously we've talked about the harms and potential negative sides of of where these things can go. And then you've got this kind of AI versus AI battle of can we detect where AI has been used and it shouldn't have been used. But what's really nice, and I'll, I'll have to find and share in in the show notes the exact reference but you know i mentioned earlier there's a set of rules that these llms cannot do some of those rules are around you cannot take action so they're already thinking about where they could be used and that's a really good first step because you've got you know algorithms that can do things on request algorithms that can go away and control systems and you know, like I think I said on a previous episode, like go and activate a, an entire disinformation campaign and go and post and, you know, do all the activities and lobbying on its own accord. Stopping that now and, and really thinking that through is, is important for, for us to do. But um, yeah, largely, I think it is a positive. It's an enabler and it's another tool and it's something that we will learn to live with and, and probably not be able to live without in a very short space of time. So on that more positive note, what's the use case that you've seen AI applied to that you found most inspiring? Honestly, in answer to that question, it's not enough. I've got a couple, which I'll give you in a moment, but we've seen it play in creative spaces. We've seen it play in in kind of uh, automation spaces, but we've not seen it in enough spaces that are going to change our world for, for the better. So I would encourage us to think that through more. Uh, one idea that did come to mind was drug discovery and how you know we think about what uh, DeepMind have been doing with, with protein folding. Unbelievable the pace at which we can now understand and hopefully start to mitigate the impacts of of disease on on our bodies is unreal. We've got there essentially. You know, DeepMind started from trying to design some AI to, to play computer games. But the way in which that, that AI learns has now been applied to other fields. The guys at DeepMind are, are perfect examples of, let's take different areas of science and apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to the problems that exist in those fields. Let's learn from the researchers within those fields and start to understand their expertise around, for example, how biology works and bring the two things together. And I think when you take AI and machine learning and, and combine it with other fields of study, and you know, we should talk about the human and social sides of that as well, you create positive outcomes, I think. And just the sheer number of potential use cases is what's exciting to me. I don't feel like we are close to, to doing any of those things yet in the scale at which we could because you know the the curve of adoption often sits in in areas like the technology and 
you know, we've seen it largely adopted in kind of comms and in marketing and in process automation. But, you know, it is it is being looked at across wider sectors, which is very exciting. I couldn't agree more. There's part of me that really wishes that like the nonprofit community, the change maker community would have like a massive sandbox of sorts and take all of these different advancements and find different ways of applying them to their use cases. Because it would be such an incredible and profound impact if they did that, where I think this sort of gut reflex is often more fear-based rather than looking at it from the perspective of, of opportunity. And personally, I, I sincerely hope that changes because it would make such a big impact if it did. We've talked a lot about different use cases. We've talked about the challenges, but there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of new developments. So for you, what do you look at in the entire ecosystem and think that's a game changer and that's incredible? I mean, it's hard not to say generative AI and uh, LLMs. It's a struggle to look past that right now and, and the pace at which they are evolving is the most exciting space. However, I don't want to limit my perspectives to LLMs. And, and you know, we've got multimodal coming. So, you know, we had original GPT models that were just text. Now we've got GPT-4, which is image and text as inputs, text as outputs. We've got stable diffusion and, and DALI, which are, you know, text as inputs and image as outputs. So much of the world is not text-based and is not static image-based, but it's voice and it is video. And I think the multimodal side of how do we encapture and the data collection side of that is much harder, I think, because what's on the internet is a reflection of how people talk on the internet, which again, you know, I just want to stipulate, it's not a reflection of the world. It's a reflection of the world as we represent it on the internet, right? Um, which I think is people don't think about. But as we try and design multimodal models that can take in, you know, uh, like imagine if, if you were wearing your glasses and they were able to capture the world around you and the conversations that, that you had. And obviously we've got ethical and considerations and such, but imagine a world where you're able to capture the multimodality and have a model that's able to output multimodality. It will come and I don't think it'll be as far away as, as you imagine. So generative AI, amazing. I'm also excited about how we take this, which is largely non-physical, maybe this is also dangerous, but I think it's exciting, and translate that into the physical realm. So, you know, last year I was hugely excited by Elon Musk's showcase at, at the Tesla AI Day. A lot of people looked at that robot and they saw, you know, it looks ridiculous, it can hardly walk. You know, what is this? Because they look at Boston Robotics and these you know, flipping and, and dancing robots. But what Elon Musk is trying to do is make them affordable. And, you know, a bit like they did with the cars, they've reduced the types of sensors. Um, they used to have all different types of sensors on the car, but now it's just vision. And the same in the in the humanoid robot is it, they're just focusing on vision um, algorithms and vision sensors. So reducing the cost and they're re reducing the dependency so they're able to make them affordable and get them in the homes of, of people. And I think that's really exciting because it is gonna be in our hands, right? A bit like when we got the iPhones in our hands, it's gonna be in our in our home, shall I say. And then you you apply, 
you know, generative AI in those physical, you know, humanoid forms. And you asked me about exciting applications. I think vulnerable, I mean, I'm thinking of older people now in the UK example, but um, companions to help old people who are potentially on a, a downwards curve or, or have kind of uh, Alzheimer's on the horizon and having to keep their mind active and a sense of, of being and purpose and, you know, just a, a friend to call on, a bit like a, a dog it is the same, but this is stimulating in a different way, right? So I think bringing those two things together is amazing. I'm also excited about digital twins and our ability to simulate the world we live in and optimize the different things we do. You know, we talked earlier about world impact and climate change and you know, these are things where um, digital twins and and then again, bringing in into the advancements from generative into that space, I think is going to be fascinating. And I'm also very excited about governance and the way that we raise the profile and the importance of governance. And finally, I think investment and investment in the right places. So it's unfortunate that it's taken ChatGPT to, to raise the awareness quite as much of AI as it has done, but now it's front and center and we can start to make those connections between different things. Like I mentioned that human robots and digital twins to not limit ourselves at how they currently stand. But then again, you ask me next week, Angeli, my answer will probably be different because it's moving so fast that we really, we really can't tell. I probably will ask you next week as well. I don't know if you've heard this Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. And we so, so do. It's such a fascinating time to be alive. The possibility that we have with the technology that we're developing, where it's going, and that really it's in our hands and very much our choice as well, how we use it and where we apply it. It's very exciting and very thought-provoking. So thank you for this. And thank you for listening. This is the Make Data Human podcast, and you can find us where all good podcasts live. 